Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Jay. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode 11 for season 8. This episode was recorded on Monday, the 19th of November, 2018, and is sponsored by Michael Brady, Ted Mosby, and Mr. Wiggins Abattoir. I'm Drew Freeman, and I'm here, as always, with my Lego constructing season 8 co-host, Jay Strong. Thanks, Drew. So on this episode, we have Renee Cachot and Josh Berlin, authors of the book Advanced iOS App Architecture. Let me tell you a little bit about our guests. Renee loves to architect and build software. He's currently a mobile architect at Atlassian, nice, where his mission is to design Atlassian's mobile platform. He especially loves all things mobile and currently architects for both Android and Apple platforms. Renee has been engineering iOS apps since 2009 and has experience in mobile client and server engineering, mobile user experience design, and product management. Renee has worked on a wide range of apps spanning from industrial sales enablement to worldwide social networking. Renee enjoys starting his days in true Austin, Texas fashion with a breakfast taco along with a freshly brewed cappuccino. In addition to building mobile apps, he loves to travel, snow ski, ocean kayak, and root for his alma mater, the Texas Longhorns. Welcome to the show, Renee. Thanks so much. We're excited to be here. Also with us, we have Josh Berlin. Josh loves building thoughtful user experiences on mobile. He's currently an iOS engineer at Cruise Automation, making apps for self-driving cars. Mm. He's built apps for the iPhone and iPad since 2008. Uh, Josh recently finished culinary school in Austin, Texas, and when he's not coding, he's probably cooking or dreaming of food. Glad to have you. I'm hungry now. Uh, thanks so much. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so in part one of the show, we're going to talk about app architecture, why it matters, and evaluating some of the problems that architecture really has to solve. And then later on in the show, uh, Josh is going to talk to us about Redux. Now, before we go on, I have to fanboy for a second because Atlassian, I, I, oh my goodness. I mean, I, I, I don't think I could actually write code right now because I am such an Atlassian addict. And I know there are other people like, oh, that's such a shame, but, but, oh my, I, I, uh, so there's that. That's great. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we love building software for, for other teams and I think, uh, we have a pretty bright future ahead of us. So really looking forward to seeing what we do, especially in the mobile space. We're just getting started building mobile things. So yeah, it's always very funny because, uh, a lot of people always refer to Atlassian as a small company that's just still trying to build up and find its audience. And it's like, how many fortune 500 companies depend on you at this point? Yeah, I don't know, but quite a bit. I mean, and, um, I've actually been at the company during a transition. We went, uh, from a you know, privately held company to IPO, and it's definitely changing quite quite a bit. Um, it's getting much much bigger. I mean, we used to have un, like below about thousand uh, eight hundred employees. Now we have about two thousand something. So I mean, it's it's growing. And on the other hand, Josh, with the, the fact that you are working in the wonderfully expanding field of self driving cars, um, I'm personally based out of Pittsburgh, and I know that we've uh, we're a, a major test city for uh, for cars that. Well, many of the cars here have what look like large lamb skewers spinning on top of them. That's the best way I always <laughs> refer to it as the spinning, <laughs> the spinning hero meat. Lots of fun stuff, but let's get into uh, into brass tacks. 
And we've had a good season so far because we've talked about design patterns. We've talked about architecture, but this is this is getting into the nitty gritty. I mean, I joke that we uh, sponsor the episode by uh, Michael Brady, Ted Mosby, and, and Mr. Wiggins' avatar. And for those who who didn't get any of those, those are some fictitious <laughs> fictitious architects. And I, I encourage you to look them up. I'll have them in the show notes. So let's just start out right from oddly enough the foundation. What is it? that makes architecture such a an interesting yet at the same time a very challenging field well i think it's because first of all it encompasses so much of building uh, any kind of software and it also is a pretty polarizing topic you have folks that are pretty strongly in one camp or the other and it's really hard to um identify what pieces of architecture actually make a, a, a difference versus some that are just kind of arbitrary. And so it's, it's very easy to get caught up in the whole architecture discussion and get caught up in the details and focus on everything as opposed to like the few things that really make a difference that will really help your team grow uh, and move fast. What about, um, so we like, uh, like Drew was saying, we've talked about some design patterns. What uh, what are kind of the big picture things that make arch uh, app architecture different from design patterns? So, I mean, design patterns are a big part of app architecture. Um, and I would say that, you know, all good architectures are made up of design patterns. Design patterns are kind of like the kind of the elements that you can use to kind of architect good software. Um, at a high level, I mean, architectures typically span larger responsibilities. Like when you're looking at design patterns, you're really focused in on maybe like a class or two or how two objects interact versus uh, architecture. You're looking more at how is a whole application structured. And so it's kind of like the 10,000 foot view of, of your code base. As a lot of our audience are developers themselves, and we all know the horrors that is technical debt or the lack of time that our, our PMs will allow us to solve such things. Can you give us a rough idea when you're beginning a project, how not to either architect yourself into a corner or how to be prepared for when the PM comes down and says, glue this round peg onto the square holes that you've made? How do you prepare for something like that when you're starting the project? I mean, with a lot of practice. Um, <laughs> well, yes. A lot of the stuff... Is, is, is really hard to just kind of, uh, I think the hardest part about architecture is that you can read a book all day long, but um, it really requires experience and it really requires practice. I think that's kind of the most important thing about architecture. Um, and the thing that I've learned just from trying to apply it uh, over years that you, I can't just pick up a book and just architect something. I have to try it out. And, you know, and every single time I've ever architected something, um, it's never looked exactly like what a book says architecture looks like. It always looks something different. There's always tweaks you have to make here and there. And so once you kind of get that spidey sense for what makes good architecture, it really helps you design systems in a way that, you know, if, if a product manager is breathing down your neck and wants you to ship something, you know how to design around it. So you say, okay, well, maybe I don't have the time to make the internals of this subsystem perfect, but at least I know where how to identify the seams between the subsystems so that I still decouple that one piece from the rest of the code so that I can later go on, change it all I want without having uh, the fear of breaking something else. Nice. So you're saying that it comes from a lot of practice. Would it then be good to say that while it's good to study it in a book, much like picking up any language, either computer or foreign, 
immersing yourself and running through the activities on a regular basis is really where the growth comes from in this. It's yeah. It's less theoretical. It's really going to be more how many things can I throw at myself? Yeah, I mean, I, I would recommend just, you know, practicing and experimenting. I think one of the things that as I talk to different developers, the thing that's most off-putting when when folks hear about architecture, or hear talks about architecture, is that it seems very dogmatic, very kind of like, this is the way you will build stuff. And developers don't seem to really like that, uh, including me. I, I really think that these architectures are a starting point for you to practice and exper experiment, but um, you know, not there's not going to be a pattern that works for every single app. And then there's also kind of, there's a little bit of creativity and style into it as well. So there's also a little bit about preference and, and the style and what, what you care, what you care about. Um, so I think that's kind of important. Yeah. A lot of people tend to miss the fact that programmers uh, are a little bit of an extravagant group, but at the same time, they tend to forget that while we're doing technical stuff, we sort of fancy ourselves as artists and that view of, no, no, I'll code it. Don't tell me what code to write. Right. I'll write the code. And that, I think, is what you're getting at there, is that it's it's hard to teach somebody a coding style without doing that feeling of lifting their hand and saying, here, here's the code to write, which is going to really make them kind of eh, touchy. Yep. Yep. I mean, I think that's where like the word craftsmanship comes from and why a lot of people talk about software as a craft. Um, I think that's kind of where that comes from. So what sources would you suggest to... I don't know, do the equivalent of Rocky beating up on meat in the freezer locker. Where do you go to actually say, here's something I want to work on to test how I know my architecture? Oh, man. Uh, good. Put you on the spot within the first three minutes of the yeah. show. <laughs> you know, I, I really don't don't have a good answer for that in terms of like testing your, your knowledge. Um, well, not so much testing. Not so much testing. Not so much, you know, seeing whether or not I'm right, but more the exercise. Where Where is the place... Well, what are good sources that somebody can go to find a project on their own to say, I'm going to go architect something? Got it. And I realize architect sounds like such a big term, but just some general sources where somebody would say, I, I wouldn't even think to look here, but here's a place I can pick something out and do. Martin Fowler's blog is great. Um, mm -hmm. the, thing, the thing is like... Uh, client architecture, like when I mean client, I mean like server client, uh, has been around for a long time. And, you know, there's a lot of good um, architecture blog posts that date way back in the day. Um, but so Martin Fowler's blog is probably my favorite. Uh, he has a lot of really good stuff in there. Um, there's also some more recent stuff. Um, Swift by Sundell is really good. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of good stuff in, in Ray Winter, like tutorials and books and things like that. Um, oh, of course. Those are probably the, the big ones uh conf conference talks i went to 10 conferences um i think uh there's a dub dub talk about app architecture i think it was 2017 uh called advanced app architecture i'd recommend taking a look at that um there's a lot of stuff i mean honestly i would almost just google uh app ios app architecture you'll, you'll find lots of different things i have two books that i have kept on me since i started programming and I always joke at this point that I'm the, the white-haired man that looks like Santa Claus. Um, they're called Basic Computer Games by a man, I think his name was Robert All. And these were uh, games written in Basic back at a time where you had text as your UX. But, you know, and uh, if, you, if you remember old computer theory, games like Wumpus or, or the like. 
But the thing is that I kept these books on me, and every time I get thrown a new language, every time an Objective-C or a Swift or a Kotlin comes out, obviously these are languages that do not use line numbers or go-tos. But they basically are, literally, basically, they're a list of small apps that you can sit at and go, okay, here we go, from scratch, how do I put this together in that world? And it's nice to have that that little bucket of old things, because they're small. Yep. They don't really require a lot, but they require you to fundamentally think, okay, I'm not writing a basic program. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because like one of the biggest challenges right now is that you know, the SDKs just keep growing and growing and growing and growing. I mean, when we started uh, iOS, you know, we had UIKit, we had MapKit. I don't even think we had MapKit, actually, back we had then. Foundation. Um, we had Foundation. Now we have what, you know, ARKit, you know... Um, there's tons of SDKs, ML Core. Core ML, Core Animation, Core Blah Blah, Core Radio Gaga. You know, there's, yeah, it, it used to be that we could memorize the new uh, frameworks that came out, or we could learn the new mm -hmm. frameworks. And now, if you know all the frameworks, there's something weird about you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love seeing postings now for jobs. It's like must have A, B, C, D, and E. And it's like, okay, so those are the uh, frameworks that your company is currently using. Yeah. And even even when you're even when you're working on like a just a, a basic app, like companies always want all those features in your product. So you like you have to either find someone on your team that wants to learn this stuff or just not do it. I swear I'm going to do an episode at some point in the future on what you read in job listings and what they really mean. <laughs> must must have ten years experience with Swift, which came out five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Digression story. I went for an interview back when Java was new, and the guy sitting next to me at this place said, how much Java should I tell him I have? Six years? Seven years? My mind's going, it came out five years ago. You ever work for Sun? Who are they? Tell them nine. <laughs> um, so let, let's, let's, let's not digress too far and talk about um, some more specific things. What are the things that architecture really is, is trying to solve? What, what problems are you really trying to get at in good architecture? I think the, the essence of it is making, you know, designing code that's easy to change. Um, I think back when iOS first came out, you know, apps were fairly straightforward. They were basically fancy table view apps, but today, you know, apps are really complicated. They're getting really, really, you know, rich with features, and it's just uh, in today's kind of software industry, everyone's trying to move fast and everyone's trying to experiment. And you know, taking that kind of lean development approach requires a lot of change. You know, and so uh, part of the goal is to make it safe to make changes, and I think that's where app architecture has a huge role to play. Is a good architecture will allow your team to grow and it will allow you to, to make changes without breaking stuff and feeling pretty confident about it. You know, one of the things that I've found most difficult when coming into a company to sort of take over the code is that things like unit tests sometimes will be there, more often than not, not. But when I try to test segments of the code, I find that there are sort of black box areas that you really can't unit test those functions by themselves because they just have their their tendrils in too many different things. So there's no way to just set that up and try that general area of code. And I'm assuming that that's a good example or a bad example of bad architecture. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like when you have a situation like that, um, if you don't have unit tests, then 
you know, you're making changes and I think you're just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping nothing breaks. Uh, and if you do have unit tests in that case, you're probably, probably really hard to unit test that you'll probably have a ton of setup. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's part of the arc, part of the goal of architecture is separating things into different independent, independent chunks so that you can just test that one one piece without having to know about the rest. One of the things that I often hear about with architecture is dealing with code, and the term is hard to flex. Can you first explain what flexing code is? <laughs> yep. And then talk about some of the uh, some of the things that that you can do to get away from that. I think I think someone uh, I, I heard someone talk about this, and I really like what they said. Where it's like, there's a reason why software is called soft. Uh, it's because it, it needs to be flexible. Um, there's just there's a lot of different like uh, aspects to flex. I mean, part of part of it is all is like not being locked into a technology. So for folks that remember parse.com, um, if you you know um, depended heavily on that, you know. You know, you know this story and how that went. Um, you know, it's 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 really easy to get locked into things like data databases and stuff like that. Um, and technology just evolves so quickly that when you depend on these things uh, and they change on you, you know, it's it's just a constant refactor and a constant. Oh, now we have to go touch all these files and make all these changes. So one part to flex is like not being locked into a specific piece of technology. Um, another flex has to do with around um, being able to substitute things. So like if I'm building like, you know, a, a set of libraries, um, I don't, you know, I want to probably design it in a way that if you just need one of my 10 libraries, uh, you don't need all 10 of them, right? Uh, a poorly architected system would require you to bring everything in, but a well-architected system would, would allow you to bring just one thing in. Um, so that's another kind of kind of flex. Um, th there's a lot, a lot of different kinds too, yep. Yeah, it's one of the reasons that I've always liked the delegate um, design pattern. And that's really that concept of being able to say, you know, my unit does a specific thing, but there are certain behaviors of my unit that I don't want to code and make it able to be switched out and switched in. And it's one of the reasons that I've always been a great fan on iOS of the table on similar views because it's such a good process of delegation, not just the behavior, but the data management. And to me, that's always been some beautiful architecture. Yeah, yeah, it's very powerful. Yep. We talked about locking into technologies like databases. And uh, we've also said that, you know, there are new frameworks all the time. I, I remember when I had to roll my own XML parsing and then there was XML parse and now there is the codable uh, protocols that allow you to basically do on the fly serialization mostly still needs a little bit of maturity but that's just me can you talk about some of the other technologies that you find yourself accidentally again backing yourself into a lock with that you have to then chisel away from i mean you kind of inferred a couple of them like uh you know network payloads is, is a big one so you know you're <laughs> yeah um yeah like i think i think one way uh, i think about it is it, like, what are you in control of, right? And what what it what what are you and your team in control of, and what are you not in control of? And so, if you think about what you're not in control of, you're probably not in control of the server. Maybe depends on what team you are. But if you're not in control of the server, then chances are some other person on some other team can just decide, ah, I was giving you XML, and now I'm going to give you JSON. Um, things like that. I think you know that's that's one lock in is is kind of uh, data data type. 
uh, for over the network. So this helps us really see how to put things together on a sort of an abstract level. I mean, we've not really given a lot of concrete examples. We've talked about some of the ideas, some of the rules, and in the second half of the show, Josh is actually going to help us focus in a little bit more directly on a specific form of architecture for uh, Redux. Started sort of as a web technology, focusing more on state architecture, if I'm right. And we're going to talk more about that in the second half, coming right up. We're still here with Josh and Renee, ready to dive into some more specific examples of app architecture. Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the architectural pattern that you mentioned in the first app? Redux. Redux. It's a it's a pattern inspired by Facebook Flux. So the the story is like Facebook had this issue where they were showing um, unread counts on their on their website, and they were different in different parts of the UI. So if you would look at like the messages bar, the the unread count would be one number and you look somewhere else like bottom right corner of the screen and it's it's different. So they developed this architecture pattern called flux um, to kind of make sure that all the UI components were, were were referencing the same state store. So the number would be the same. The unread message count would be the same. Uh, and Redux is an architecture, it's a library that was born out of this. So is Redux specifically web-based or is it something that works on different platforms? Redux is, is an, an architectural pattern that is, um, it was originally web-based, but now it's it's on iOS. It's called ReSwift. Somebody built a library for iOS. Now, it, it gets tricky because when you talk about it being an architectural pattern, you know, people want to think about that as a library, a framework, but, but we're not talking about that. We're actually talking about a way of coding. Exactly. So... Redux originally is is a pattern, so it was like an idea of how to how to solve this like unread count. Um, and there are different different libraries based on this pattern. So Redux is implemented in JavaScript. It's implemented in Swift. So I remember there was sort of that concept of an action will occur and it will then push through a process. Is that correct? Exactly. So you never pull data using Redux. It's, uh, data is always pushed to all the different UI components. Um, so the components are are all pretty dumb. This is like if if you're talking about like the Facebook app, everything just gets updates and redraws its UI. Does that mean that we're basically looking at something that's more MVVM, or are we getting away from MVM, MVVM, and MVC entirely? So some of the concepts are similar to MVVM, but um, MVVM doesn't have a centralized state store. Um, with MVVM, each each kind of UI component of your app has its has its own uh, view model, and the view model is responsible for things like business logic and making sure the UI is is updated properly. But with Redux, the all the state of your app is stored in one place. So every every state that your app needs, whether it's like what screen I'm on or what data I'm displaying, it's all stored in one massive store. Let's uh, let's back up for people who are just getting into this now. Can you explain a little more detail what a shared state store is? The idea is you have one one store that holds all the data for your entire application, um, whether it's the current screen that's displayed or uh, data that you get from a rest rest call it's all stored in one place. And anytime this data updates, it gets pushed out to the entire app. So you don't, you don't have separate stores for all your different types of data. You only have a single store. 
So it's a little wacky and it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's a concept that's hard to wrap, wrap your head around because every, every piece of data is stored in one place. How different or similar is it to a singleton? If that question makes sense. No, it's, I mean, it's basically a singleton in, in some aspects. Um, the thing is you, you can't, you can't access this from anywhere in the app. You have to subscribe to updates. So you can't just like access the store and, and get data from it. You have to wait for it to push data to you. So you're not actually requesting data. You're basically saying, I'll be here when the data flies out to me ready to catch it. Like listener. Exactly. Yeah. So basically any, any UI component is a listener and you tell the store what you want to listen to. And whenever the store changes, it pushes new data to you. And it really does mean that the data views have to be incredibly stupid because you're not reading back from them. I mean, a lot of people will, will well, they'll tend to overcode views and say, okay, so I'll push the data into that view and then, then I'll connect to that view somewhere else and I'll know that I can get that number from that view. But we basically have to treat it like, yeah, I will paint that number on the screen when I get it. But other than that, it's a picture and it's about no value to anybody except the person looking at it. Exactly. It makes a lot of your views kind of read only. So uh, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to show data that isn't uh, fresh because the views monitor the store and every time the store changes, it pushes new, new data and it's guaranteed that any screen in your app is going to have the latest update. So talking about the Facebook model then, what do you do when you're actually generating data that will be pushed to the store? For example, I'm writing a post and I'm typing in text. Well, at this point now, I'm, I, I guess somebody's going to subscribe to a view item or an interface item, but can you explain that a little more in detail? Right. So if you're, if you're, if you're typing in text, um, the text that you're typing in is essentially state. So that's actually stored in the, in the Redux store. Uh, so as you type, you would update the state. Um, and then when you're, when you're done, it would kind of circle back. Um, and somewhere you would make a post. Um, so all that, all that, all that state is stored in the Redux store. And I guess this makes sense from a, especially from a web point of view, where <laughs> if I go to that page, I want that page to just always render with the information I have. And if I walk away and I come back, it renders with the same information, or it's basically rendering with slightly updated information in places. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, it kind of it kind of brings the web model to iOS, that reactive web model. Now, can you talk about the store to me? Uh, I, I, you said it's hard to wrap your head around. And I always think about my data as at least living in some kind of a bucket. So I'm assuming that we're basically taking it and we're serializing it. Can you, can you give me some ideas about how the store works? The store can hold any type of data. So um, essentially what you have to do is is when you're building your app, you have to model the store uh, based on what your screens look like. So uh, all your different different transitions uh, have to go in the store, and like um, any any screen that you have, all the 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 different states have to be defined up front. So, for example, if you have um, uh, a text field that you have to type something in, um, and then push the submit button, and it sends an API call out, uh, all those different states have to be defined up front, which is kind of um, one reason that makes Redux cool is you you have to, every, every state in your app has to be defined. Um, so there's no states that are kind of 
loose ends. So it sort of goes back to that idea of pre-initializing variables. You can't just say, well, how do I start? You are just expecting to be told how to start like you're being expecting to be told what to display. Exactly. Every When a view is initialized, the, the state store tells it exactly what to display. It tells it its current, current uh it gives it the current data and the view just renders that. And you talked about the idea that it's subscribing. You say, I want to be a receiver of this information. I guess at this point, then this solves that problem of I have to put that information on two or three different places. So if all three subscribe to the same piece, uh, to the same state, then all three are going to get the exact same information every time. Right. This goes back to the Facebook problem of the messages count being different on different screens. Um, and you're app, every screen references the same store. So you always have the most up-to-date data. So this makes sense for me on tracing the line of state or I guess current state, which I don't need to know what current state is. I just need to know what state I'm, you know, I'm just expecting a state to be thrown at me. I'll take an action. Talk about the process where once I do an action and I want to modify state, how does that occur coming from the UX back into the single store? Right. So all the only way to modify the store is by basically what you do is you, you give the store the, the current state and what's called an action, which is just um, a declaration of a state change. And then uh, the store takes that, modifies the data and pushes out an update. So there's a, it's very like one directional. Um, you, you tell the state what's, you tell the store what state to change and then it changes it and then pushes all that back to the rest of your app. So a state change always fires off a an update to all of its subscribers. Exactly. Whoever, whichever screen cares about it, it gets updates. Let me ask you this. If I have a very complex piece of UX and it needs to get a whole bunch from the store at once, does it basically have to make itself a listener of everything that's in there? Or does it have ways of breaking down that information? No, actually you can subscribe to just pieces of the store at one time. So you don't have to actually subscribe to every data change because it would get kind of crazy. I think like what one small view maybe subscribing to the whole store would get a ton of updates. Uh, so you can subscribe to only data you care about. And when that data changes, you get push an update. Sort of a sub-state. It's a sub-state, right. Okay. Now, this sounds like a really great idea, but it also sounds like it has its positive use cases and sort of negative use cases. Especially, I mean, from the web, I can really see its use cases. I'm assuming that there are places that it would work better on iOS, and there are places that this is not the architecture that you want to use in iOS. Can you help me split those two up? Right. So, so Redux would be good for... Um, probably smaller applications. Once you start getting like way too complex, defi maybe defining the, the different substates gets a little complicated. But what's nice about it is you can use it in framework. So maybe like uh, storing the user session info, maybe if you're writing an authentication framework, it would be great for that. Um, so you could you could isolate the this pattern just to the framework and your, the rest of your app doesn't actually have to use it. Jay mentioned earlier the idea of comparing it to a singleton, and it almost sounds like if you have singleton control or singleton data, that that in its way is sort of the basis of this architecture. Is that accurate or is that uh, an oversimplification? Um, so th the store is is 
similar to a singleton. The, the difference is like you can't just grab the single the store from anywhere and modify it. It's you have to modify it using very focused actions. So it's you have to very specifically tell the store what to change and then that broadcasts the change of the whole app. So you can't just grab the store and like change the variable and no one knows about it. Every single time it's it's data is updated in the store, uh, the entire app knows. So it's similar to a singleton, but it's not exactly a singleton. Can you give me an example of a place where you have used this yourself in a project? In the example app in our book, we built a, a ride sharing application. Uh, and we use Redux as an example architecture to build that. And what's really cool is um, the ride sharing app has a ton of states. So like, you know, pre when you're requesting a, a ride, you have to pick a uh, drop off and uh, like a pickup location and then you're actually on the trip and then the trip ends. So before you uh, can build that, you have to define every single state and that state is always stored in the Redux store. So anytime it changes, um, your entire app knows which state you're in, so which ride state you're in. So let's back up to the, the, the use cases where Redux is not the right choice. What kind of things sort of are, are your red lights saying, no, 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 don't, don't use Redux for this kind of a problem? I think it more depends on like your, your current team and if, if you actually want to learn a new framework. Redux kind of, it has a lot of, of parts. Um, it's a very lightweight library, but some of the concepts are a little maybe hard to get your team on board. Any app you could build using this this framework, but it's just, uh, it depends on how much you're willing to put into it. I mean, I'd say that like um, any app that does heavy number crunching is probably not a good candidate because you're not, you're not going to want to put all the data that you're streaming into a single store. Uh, you might run out of memory at some point. So that's probably like if you're doing like, um, like a fitness type of, app where you're, you're, you're streaming a ton of data and doing a lot of analysis on that data, it's probably not a, a good candidate for, for Redux, probably. It's another example. Would a game fit Redux? I, I realize that game has a lot of complex algorithms, possibly for the drawing, but inevitably it's really pushing things out or managing, and maybe the, the, the score or something on the state store, but is that something that would work or is that kind of pushing again in the wrong direction? Um, a game. It's always a good feeling when both guests look at me like, why did you ask that question? I mean, I'll be honest, I've never written a game before, so, but, you know, just, just looking at things like uh, Scene Kit or all the kind of, it, it sounds like games have a very specific way of, of describing state and having kind of how you kind of progress through the 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 state machine of a of a game, but yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't know whether or not Redux would work with games or not. It, it might. Uh, I've never tried it. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a game. I mean, what what would be nice about writing a game using Redux is that um, there's a lot of state in a game. So uh, declaring all your state up front and storing it in one place might might work out actually pretty well. Um, yeah, but if if there's a ton of data you're storing for your game, then you might have to have to 
figure out a different option. For those of you listening to the podcast, Josh now has a gleam in his eye that says, I'm going to go try to see if this will work. Redux really does sound like it's an architectural design that can give us a lot of new ways to look at things. And coming from the web technologies, potentially a new way to optimize and reduce down that amount of code. And I think that's a rather interesting thing. And we can probably segue and digress here. We're always coming up with these new architectural methods. And uh, Renee mentioned in the first half the fact that original iOS programming was much easier because there was a lot fewer frameworks. How do you guys feel that that architecture has really developed? Let's just focus on iOS over the last, God, what is it now, about 12 years. So, you know, what kind of, what kind of major changes have you seen occur over this time? I think the biggest change was when Swift came out because before Swift, you know, we were programming in a very dynamic language. And, you know, we were doing a lot of things like uh, observing notifications using strings and, you know, kind of very dynamic um, type system. And then Swift got introduced, which is like the complete opposite. Um, and so now you have to deal with things like generics and things like that, which really do affect the way that you structure and architecture things. And so <clears throat> like Redux, for example, is, comes from a kind of functional background that really like uh, plays well with something like Swift. So like if we were still doing everything in Objective-C, you know, Redux really wouldn't be even an option probably. Um, and so that, that's what I would say is the biggest change in architecture was when we went from a super dynamic la la language to a super statically typed uh, language. I think that was a huge change. I don't know, Josh, if you have any thoughts on other kind of big changes that we've seen. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the last like maybe five years since Swift came out, it's um, the type of architectures people are using have gotten um, pretty complicated. I mean, MVVM is, I think, a, a great architecture, but uh, it's not easy to teach someone new like if someone comes on your team and like has never dealt with rx swift before or these these reactive concepts um then it's it's hard to um be efficient and build new features quickly uh so i'm finding like these architectures are great but a lot of people just want to want to go back to like the cocoa patterns and kind of like uh, try to try to use these functional concepts of Swift, but not necessarily a full like MVVM implementation. Oh, the universities will catch up eventually. <laughs> I mean, I remember when MVC came out, and they really didn't talk about MVC. We were still doing pretty much procedural programming at that point, even though we had objective code or object-oriented code. Now, you know, if you're not learning MVC, you're probably not in a computer course. Uh, you figure MVVM and Redux and all these other concepts will be coming uh, coming to a university near you soon. Check out your 800 level classes on the graduate level. Soon they'll be on the 300 level, and soon your high school kids will be doing it and retiring from elementary school. You know, it's it's how that all proceeds. Uh, it's interesting too because it's not that Swift really added things that weren't in Objective C. You had your enums, you had your structs. Um, having tuples, of course, is an amazing addition, and then coercing those tuples into structs, enums, and everything else is, is amazing. What is it about Swift that really broke away from Objective-C, in your opinion? What, what specific things really allowed this leap? Functions as first-class types really made a huge difference. Um, you know, we had we had blocks in in Objective C, but how many people went to the you know 
bleep uh, box uh, box and tax uh, site. You know, everyone did. Um, you know, and so like, I think you know, being able to like pass functions around and and have a function that returns a function and um, all these things really kind of uh, kind of took the object oriented world that we were in and kind of upgraded into this world of object oriented when you need it, functional when you don't, um, and being able to kind of play. Uh, between these two worlds in the same language, I think I think that was a, a big difference between Objective C and Swift. I really think at one point somebody looked at Blocks and says we can do better, and that's where Swift started from. I think it's really been a good season because, like I said, we have had design patterns, we we've had data structures, some algorithmic work, and we're sort of capping this entire thing off with some more abstract views through architectural concepts. The book Advanced iOS App Architect. Again, it's uh, available on raywenderlich.com. Really is giving an overview of these concepts. And I really appreciate the fact that rather than having five or six different apps, that you've got the one app and you just take different approaches at it to basically let people see there are different ways to think about putting all of the information together. Guys, it's been a really informative episode. I have to admit, Redux was not something I'd come in contact with. And I'm definitely going to, like every other technology that's been thrown at me this season, read up on it, have my head explode after the season. And when it oozes back in, I'll, I'll come back for another season of this stuff but this was great stuff josh renee thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for so much for having us yeah thanks so much that's going to wrap things up for jay and i for episode 11 we'll be back in a few more weeks to wrap up the season episode 12 will be coming out until then i'm drew freeman along with jay strawn and we head back to the emerald world ray back to you and that's a wrap thanks again everybody for listening to the raywenderlich.com podcast We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.